Uh, at North Roanoke Baptist Church, we are committed. We are committed to working through the Bible because we believe it is in the Bible that God has spoken. And He still speaks in His Bible today loud and clearly to His people. And so we are working through the book of Hebrews. And uh, we are in chapter 1, verses 7 through 14 today. The entire series of Hebrews, we're just going to call Jesus is Better. Because the word better occurs 12 times in the book of Hebrews, more than twice what it occurs in the rest of the New Testament. We see it for the first time in verse 4, that he has a name which is much better than the angels. And verse 4 begins this section that continues through verse 14, in which the author of Hebrews is saying, look, there's really no comparison between Jesus Christ, who is Son of God, and therefore God, and the angels. There was this church that was tempted to regress to worshiping things that were less than Christ so that they could not face persecution or adversity for their faith in Christ. So this morning, we're going to dive into the second half of this section that spans from verse 4 to verse 14 of chapter 1 in a sermon that I have really creatively titled, Jesus is Much Better Than the Angels, Part 2. In a world where many want to hold to a form of spirituality that includes the angels, while they neglect the faith that requires submission to Jesus, we need to be reminded, church, of this temptation, and we need to be reminded of the greatness of Jesus who has rescued us. So I want to ask, would you stand once more for the reading of God's Word, beginning in verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 1. And of the angels, he says, who makes his winds excuse me, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of of the earth and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? God, we ask that as we dive into this text, that we would see your Son. That we would see how great and majestic and exalted and high He is. That He is worthy of our fidelity and our faithfulness and our worship God, that we would be filled up to overflowing with a passion for the glory of Christ. We ask it in His name. Amen. You may be seated. So last week we saw in verses 4 through 6 that Jesus is the Son. And because He's the Son, He's got a better name than the angels who do not have the access or the authority of a son. A son gets into the father's house, he's got that authority, he's got that access. And so the only way that we can be restored to a right relationship with God the Father is through Christ, His Son. We also saw 
that the angels aren't confused about this. You remember the angels are around the throne worshiping Christ. And if the angels worship Jesus, then why would we worship anything less than what the angels worship? Why would we give our attention, divert our attention to the angelic host when they themselves are committed to the worship of Christ? And now today, we sort of pick up that line of thought in verse 7 and following, and we see that to have a faith that pleases God, we need to understand that the angels are God's servants, but Jesus is God and King. Secondly, we must believe the angels are contingent and Jesus is the creator. And finally, we must live with confidence in the victory of Christ and the salvation of his people. First, the angels are God's servants, but Jesus is God and king. In verse 7, the author quotes from Psalm 104 verse 4 to remind us that angels, yes, they're impressive, and while they're impressive, they are nevertheless servants of God. The psalmist tells us, and then Hebrews reminds us, that God actively makes them winds and a flame of fire. They are always under God's control and do His bidding. This is a, a metaphor. Kistemacher says the angels are like winds and bolts of lightning, which are part of God's creation and completely obedient to God's will. God uses angels to execute His will and they serve Him in a mighty way, forceful as the wind and destructive as a streak of lightning. When their task is completed, however, they return to God, humble and obedient servants. The word but at the beginning of verse 8 is a beautiful word. It's a word in the Bible of contrast. But Jesus. But of the Son. In other words, the angels are servants. They're commanded by God. They do God's bidding. But Jesus is in an entirely different category. While angels are servants of God, of the Son, He says what? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And here's a newsflash for us, church. If the Father God calls Christ His Son God, then Jesus is God. We should also know that Jesus is God, not just because the Father says so, but because He sits on the Father's forever throne. He's the forever King of a forever kingdom. He is the King worshipped as God. I love what Moeller says. Angels might surround the throne of God, but the Son sits on the throne. And we worship the one who is on the throne, not those who are around the throne. We worship the we are we are enlisted in the praise and the worship of the one who is the rightful heir of all things, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Son of God, the living Lord Jesus Christ. We know that he's God because the Father says so. We know that he's God because he sits on the throne, but it gets better. We also know that he's God because he holds God's righteous scepter. The scepter is the king's symbol of power, the king's symbol of authority. God's power is not just power. Did you notice he doesn't just hold God's scepter, he holds God's righteous scepter. Did you know that God's power is always clean? Did you know that what God does is always right, it is always good? God wins not only because he has all power, but because his power is never separated from his purity. He never has an ethical dilemma. He's never stressed out about the right thing to do. He does what is right. 
as God, Jesus always does the right thing. And here's a quick sidebar, church. We're supposed to be citizens of the kingdom. This is what Paul says. You are now citizens of heaven. Local churches are supposed to be little embassies that look like the kingdom of God. We're supposed to be a preview of coming attractions. People should be able to look at us and go, wow, that's what heaven is like. Which means that as the people of God, we should simultaneously be overwhelmed by both the grace of Jesus and the holiness of Jesus. We should be overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus and the holiness of Jesus. And I I have discovered something in my 41 young years on this earth. Churches usually go one direction or the other. They usually are overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus to the point that they say, you know what, it doesn't really matter what you do. You just go live your life and get baptized and come to the church when you can and do what you can. But it really doesn't matter if you actually believe it and live it out in your life. That's, that's not Jesus. Jesus carries not just a scepter, but a righteous scepter. And the way that we know we're following Him and that we've received His grace is He's leading us on to pursue love and good deeds and to live out what He's called us to live, even when it's costly, even when it hurts. Yes, Jesus is gracious. Chapter 2 tells us that He comes and He meets us where we are. That's why He becomes a man, to identify with us in our weaknesses, but not to leave us in our weaknesses and to never pursue godliness, but so that we might honor Christ by living a life that looks more and more like Jesus and less and less like we are Jesus' enemies. This is the point that Hebrews makes in verse 9. Jesus does not rule over just any old kingdom but the kingdom of God, the kingdom which is characterized by righteousness and the justice of God. The reason that Jesus is anointed as God's king is because he's the only human who ever faced the temptations of living in a fallen world and unfailingly, do you see it in verse 9? He loved righteousness and hated lawlessness always. For this reason, Jesus is the anointed king that God promised back in the book of Jeremiah The king of whom Jeremiah said, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king, and act wisely, and do justice and righteousness in the land. Did you notice that Jesus is anointed by God as king with an oil? And it's not just any oil. It's not like Wesson. It's the oil of gladness. I love this word, gladness. No one else, no angel, no other king, no other prophet, no other son, not even another king in the line of David, not even the few who were kind of good along the way, no other man, no other preacher, no other pastor, no other priest, no other mom or dad or grandmother or grandfather, no one else in the universe can gladden the human heart in the way that it was designed to be gladdened other than Jesus can. Because God has purpose to anoint Jesus Christ, His King and His Son, with the oil of gladness. Gladness comes from the King who's already been anointed with it. This word gladness is very rarely used in the New Testament. It's used of John the Baptist. Do you remember when his mother Elizabeth comes to, uh, Mary comes to Elizabeth, and when Mary comes, John the Baptist hears the voice of Jesus, and he leaps within his mother's womb. Why? For gladness, exceeding joy. 
It's used of the early church in Acts chapter 2, verse 46, when the church breaks bread together, get, listen to this, with exceeding gladness and sincerity of heart. Are you glad that you know Jesus? Are you glad that no matter what happens to you today or tomorrow or the next day, no matter what adversity you face, that you have a hope and a future that is secured through the blood of Jesus and His resurrection and His ascension to the right hand of the Father where He is ruling and reigning over the universe? That should produce within the people of God the gladness of God. If you've been anointed, if you've been empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, you should enjoy the gladness that God gives as symbolized in the anointing of His Son with the oil of gladness. The kingdom that Jesus rules is a kingdom of extreme joy. And yes, in this world we face adversity, but one day Jude 24 promises us this. We will stand in the presence of His glory, blameless, get this, with great joy. Same word, exceeding joy. The joy of the Lord comes not from spiritual speculation, but from submission to Jesus, who is God, He is God's Son, and He is God's King, a King forever anointed with God's oil of gladness. Secondly, we've got to see that the angels are contingent, and Jesus is Creator. Now you might say, what in the world does contingent mean? Contingent just means dependent upon someone else for its existence, or something else for its existence. In other words, you're all contingent. Everybody here is contingent on your biological mother and father. And your biological mother and father were contingent upon their biological mother and father, and their biological and contingent upon their biological mother and father, and all the way back until you get to Adam. And who is Adam contingent upon? He's contingent upon Creator God. There's only one being in the universe whose existence is not contingent upon another, and that being is God. And Jesus is that being. He is creator God. And that's the point of verses 10 through 12. God is still speaking in verse 10 of His Son. But the author transitions now to Psalm 102, verses 25 to 27. So in verse 8, the Father says that the Son is God. Now in verse 10, the Father says that He's also Lord, or Yahweh. Jesus is the Lord God, the Creator, the Maker of heaven and earth. But the angels, they are not. And the implication is clear. The angels are a part of God's creation, and Jesus stands over God's creation. In verses 11 and 12, we get very quickly seven statements that are contrasting creation and Jesus, who is the Creator. Creation, verse 11, line 1, will perish. Creation, verse 11, line 2, will become old like a garment. Christ, verse 12, line 1, will roll up creation like a mantle or a veil or a cloak or a piece of clothing. Creation will, like a garment, verse 12, line 2, it will be changed. But look at Jesus. Unlike creation, verse 11, line 1, He remains. Unlike creation, verse 12, line 3, He is the same. And unlike creation, verse 12, line 4, He will not be impacted by time. His years will not come to an end. Ellingsworth says it this way, The sun will change one order of creation for another as easily as human beings change one cloak for another while remaining Himself unchanged. Church, the angels are a part of God's creation and they are subject to Jesus. Jesus shares fully in the eternality of His Father. 
And one day, creation will submit forever and finally, not to the angels, but to Jesus. So what is the question that the author is asking us? What's the question behind the statement? It is this. Look, I know that living for Jesus is challenging. Look, I know it is risky, and it's unpopular, and it's hard, but let me remind you who Jesus is. Do you want your future to be in the hands of created beings or in the hands of the one who holds creation? Give your life to Jesus. He will not fail you. The answer to this question to anyone who is thinking rationally is, of course, I want to give my life to Christ. Of course, I want to live to Christ. Of course, I want to fix my eyes on eternity. The problem is sin makes you stupid. You can take that to the bank. It makes us crazy. It makes us irrational. It makes us put more value on our present circumstances than on life forevermore with Jesus. And we do silly stuff. We snap back in anger. We we doubt our wives. We doubt our husbands. We undermine even the people in our own home. We go to work and we, we make a big deal about what our boss thinks about us or all these things that are circling in the here and now and we can't get our heads out of today to look to eternity and realize I'm living for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who delivers me and saves me and rescues me and there's nothing that's going to stop me from living for Him. But sin makes you stupid. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't be stupid. Jesus is better than all the substitute answers that the world offers you for serving and living for Jesus. Thirdly, we've got to live with confidence in the victory of Christ and the salvation of His people. Living for Jesus is challenging in this world. Is that true? But we've got to never forget that Jesus is worthy of our lives because Jesus is better. I don't know what in your life contends for supremacy over Jesus. Maybe not the angels, maybe it's something else. But did you know that Jesus is better than your best performance on the job? Did you know that Jesus is better than the best term paper you could ever submit? He's better than an A-plus in your college class. He's better than being the star of the show. He's better than being the CEO, the CIO, the COO. He's God. And Jesus wins in every category that truly matters. And the question for us is, do we believe this? Not do we just believe it in our minds. Do we believe it in our hearts? Do we believe it in our lives? Do we believe it in our livelihood? Do we believe it in our calendaring? Do we believe it in every facet of our lives? This is an important question, church. Because people see more than what you think in your head or that you think you think in your head. You want to know how I know this? I read an article this week about a study that shows that 35 million, can you say 35 million? 35 million young people attending church right now will no longer identify as Christians by 2050. Our country's changing. Our culture is changing. People are tired of phony baloney, sit in a pew, do nothing about it, say I love Jesus and live just the same as the world kind of stuff. People aren't convinced by that anymore. And this is the generation 
that has to reverse the trend. We've got to do better, church. We can't tip the offering plate. We can't come once in a blue moon. We can't say that Jesus is everything and then live as though people clearly see that He's not our everything. We keep telling our families and our kids and our children and our grandchildren that Jesus is everything and then they look at our our lives and they go, He's not even in your top five. Thirty-five million young people, if the trend lines hold, who are in church today will not be identifying themselves as believers by 2050. What will we do, church? Do we believe Jesus is better? And if we believe that He is better, we have got to get to the business of showing the world that we know and believe and treasure Christ above everything else. We don't have time to waste. There, is, there are souls and eternity at stake. Do we treasure Christ above every other treasure? And I want you to know something. That's not easy to preach and it's not easy to live even as a pastor. We say, well, you're a pastor. That's easy for you to say. No, it's not. When people come into my office, they don't want to hear oftentimes what I know I must tell them. Itching ears abound. And I want to be liked. I want you to like me. I want you to think I'm a nice guy. And when you walk into my office and you're abandoning your marriage or you're being crazy with your finances and I have to tell you something that you don't want to hear, that doesn't feel good to me. I'd much rather just say, you know what, you just go have your best life now and don't worry about it. And I'm telling you, in in our culture, the desire for a Jesus who saves us but never asks us to change anything about our lives, it is rampant. It is everywhere. But that Jesus doesn't exist. There is no Jesus who saves you and doesn't change you. He's going to change your life. You say, well, that's hard, Pastor. You're preaching hard. It is hard, but let me give you some good news. Jesus wins. And that's the point of verse 13 and 14. It's going to be hard in this life sometimes, but Jesus is going to win. He is better. He will gladden your heart. He will take you through adversity with confidence. So don't give up on Jesus just because your circumstances are hard. (laughs) This is why verse 13 and 14 are so deeply encouraging to us. In verse 13, the author goes back to Psalm 110, verse 1, and he reminds us that Jesus wins. He's the resurrected, ascended, enthroned King of glory. He sits at the right hand of the Father. He shares fully in the life-giving, death-defeating, enemy-conquering, kingdom-advancing power of God. And God will see to it, do you see it right there? That every enemy of the Son of God becomes a footstool for His feet. I love that word in verse 13. Do you see that word, until? Can you say until? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Man, that word is so powerful. You know what it means? It means God is working right now toward a day that is still coming. The theologians call it inaugurated eschatology. It just means that the reign of Christ has already begun, but we have not yet seen its final reality. Ephesians 2.6 says this, We are already raised up with Him and seated with Him in the heavenly places. But then 1 John 3, verse 2 says this, What we will be has not yet appeared. 
But we know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. Jesus is already the King of the kingdom, but all of His enemies have not yet become a footstool for His feet. But it is happening. Your enemy is going to be held to account for their obedience or lack thereof to Christ. Even though we face pressure and persecution for living for Jesus, we cannot forget Jesus wins. God will see to it that the enemies of His Son are like a footstool for Him. You know what a footstool is, right? Put it up there, kick back, fall asleep, watch the PGA Tour. Watch the Redskins lose another game. The Israelites, when they're conquering the people of Canaan, is the first time we read the word footstool in association with enemies. Joshua goes into the Canaan land, and the Israelites are supposed to kick the enemies of God out of the land. They're supposed to overtake every one of them. And we read this in Joshua. Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. But you know what? Israel didn't finish the job. They left some sin in the land. There were some people they were supposed to overtake that they didn't overtake. And that reminds us that there's one who's coming who's going to be better than Israel and is going to redeem Israel and all the people who surrender to him and his name is Jesus. Jesus is the king who goes into the land and he vanquishes every single enemy. Not one of them will not fall. And we're waiting until that day that he comes. And that word until for some of you is an invitation. Because right now you're an enemy of the king of kings and lord of lords. But did you know you can choose to obey Him and follow Him now? And if you will obey Him and follow Him now as King, then you will go from being His enemy to being His friend. And on that day when He comes and all of His enemies are vanquished, you'll be one of His people. You'll be on Team Jesus. Church, we can't forget that we're living in the until. And if you belong to Jesus, when you wake up on Sunday morning and you're just not feeling it, guess what? Jesus is still winning. When you receive a disappointing diagnosis, Jesus is still winning. Jesse, when you break your arm in a freak accident that's all Ethan's fault, Jesus is still winning. When that coworker belittles you every day as a Jesus freak, Jesus is still winning. When you don't get that job or that promotion or that thing you've been praying for still hasn't come, Jesus is still winning. When you failed to muster up the energy to even pray with your four-year-old before they went to bed because they've been driving you crazy for the last three days in a row, Jesus is still winning. And if he is winning, then there's no time like the present to start following him and worshiping him and glorifying him and stop dwelling on your past mistakes and say, today is the day that I'm following Christ, the risen king. He wins. That's the point of verse 13. When you feel defeated, when it seems like speaking and living the truth isn't worth it, when, you, when it seems you can't forgive one more time, when you can't fail and get back up one more time, when you think you can't sacrifice anymore, when it seems the people of God are losing, you cannot forget where Jesus sits. He sits on the throne. And you can't forget what God is doing. He is conquering the enemies of His Son. The victory of the Son is assured, church. 
Give your all to the Son and you will not be disappointed. But until that day, you will encounter various trials, James 1, 2. And we know, as Paul says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the powers, the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 12. So this morning, if you came in feeling like you were fighting a battle against an enemy you couldn't see, guess what? You were. But God sees it too. And He's over it. And I don't know what was warring against you this morning or what's warring in your heart right now, but if you belong to Christ, look at the promise of verse 14. He sends angels into the battle on behalf of His people. Not as your special little guardian angel dedicated to just you. He sends an entire army of angels on behalf of the people of God. I'm reminded of Elisha in 2 Kings chapter 6. They're surrounded by the Aramean army. And to the naked eye, it looks like they're certainly going to be defeated. So Elisha prays that his servant would have his eyes opened by God so that he could see the unseen. He says, go back out there and look one more time and see what God's going to do. And he opens, God opens his eyes to see the unseen element around him. And we read this, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha sent by God. Jesus has already done what is necessary to win the war. But until He comes, it doesn't always seem that way. But God is not unaware of your circumstances. God is not unaware of the temptation you face. And He even sends the angels to help in the war to keep you faithful to Christ the King. So there's a little bit of irony in verse 14. If all you do is think about the angels and not about Jesus, you're actually missing out on the ministry of the angels. One of the evidences that the angels are fighting on your behalf is not that you're thinking about the angels, but that you're thinking about Jesus, because that's what they want you to do. They want you to keep being faithful to Christ. The angels don't want your worship. They want you to persevere and to inherit the salvation. Do you see that in verse 14? To inherit the salvation that Christ alone can give as the heir of all things. Verse 2. So until the day of our salvation by faith becomes a salvation we know by sight, we keep looking to Jesus, knowing that He sends even the angels to fight on our behalf. If you're facing pressure in your walk with Christ today, Maybe you came in and you were about ready to quit on the church, quit on Jesus, quit on your marriage, quit on your family, get over it with your boss. Maybe today is the day that you needed to be reminded that Jesus is better than the angels. Stay the course. Keep looking to Christ who took your sin and bore it to Calvary and now rules and reigns in righteousness. He's coming again. He wins. He's better than the angels. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we, we ask God that as we worship You in song in just a moment, that if we've been moved in our inner person and in our inner being, God, that we would respond to what You are doing in us. God, that You would give liberty in this room to worship well. God, that You would give liberty in this room to respond well. God, if there's anyone far from Your Son who needs to Trust in Him and be saved, God, that You would give them the liberty to come. If there's some who are 
or in a season of depression or discouragement or despair. God, some who were convicted this morning, Lord, I I am not living for Jesus. The world can't tell that I believe that Jesus is better. I don't show it. God, give me the, the courage to do that. Whatever you want to do in this place, God, we ask that you would do it for the glory of Christ and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen.